good morning again, and I welcome you to, if you haven't already, turn, if you have a Bible, there are Bibles in your pews, but turn with me and follow along, if you don't mind, in Matthew chapter 8, we'll just be looking at these few verses, and uh, as Steve was praying this morning, it just dawned on me once again, even as I've been prepping this week for the sermon, it just dawned on me again that we live in a kind of a chaotic world. We live in a world where um, bad things happen all the time, and um, it's hard to turn on the news. In fact, I don't look at the news very much at all. And um, there's probably good and bad that comes from that. <laughs> um, but even yesterday, as Carrie's telling me about this school shooting um, with tears in her eyes, I just realized that, that the world is chaotic. And, and you may experience chaos in your own life. Do you ever feel like in the midst of that, like God is asleep? Seriously, you ever feel like like, I was talking to somebody last week, and they were saying, I was, I was spending some time in prayer, and it just felt like the prayers were bouncing off the roof, bouncing off the ceiling, if you will. And it, we often feel like God is silent or asleep. And, and here in this story, guess what we have, folks? We have a God who's asleep. When he got into the boat, it says in verse 23, Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. We know this is the kind of the end of last week's story. He had told the disciples he wanted to go over to the other side and they were gonna go and, and now they're obeying him. They're following him like disciples are supposed to do into the boat and it says, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. So the, the disciples do what disciples are supposed to do and they follow Jesus onto the boat but then they quickly discover we don't know how long it took for the storm to come up, but the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is not that big. So they quickly discover that discipleship, that following Jesus is not devoid of its troubles. Following Jesus isn't always smooth sailing. And, and we can't be deluded, if we're going to follow Jesus, into thinking that following him exempts us from the storms and the troubles of life. Storms and chaos still come. For those who follow Jesus. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. Testify, yeah, okay. Sometimes, honestly, if we read the Gospels especially, sometimes we see that the storms actually come because we follow Jesus. Not just that we follow Jesus, but the storms come because we're following Jesus. And, and the word that captures what's happening in this story is the word chaos. The word chaos. This, this story is a story of chaos. The next story will also be a story of chaos that's connected to this one. But from the very beginning of the Bible, there's actually chaos. So, so we see this in the story going all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1.1. We all know it, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2 says this. The earth was formless and void. Didn't have any form. It was empty and darkness was over the face of the deep, over the face of the, the water. So the picture here is a globe that's covered with water. Water is formless, right? You can't, you can't grab it unless it's frozen. But if it's liquid water, it's all over the place. It's dark, it's formless, it's void. Genesis 1-2 gives us a picture of chaos. Formless, empty, dark over the entire earth. And then into this chaos, the story tells us, God's creative word brings order to the chaos. 
That's what, that's what God does when he creates, is he takes chaos and he puts things in their place. The, the Bible tells us that, that God put boundaries around the waters. And God said in, in verse 9, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. God's creative work is to take chaos and put boundaries on it, to put things in their place. And chaos happens when things overflow their boundaries, when, when things go where they're not supposed to go. Chaos is a form of decreation. When things in your life go beyond their proper bounds or they're not supposed to be, it feels like everything is falling apart. And, and five chapters later in the, in the, in the book of Genesis, the same waters of chaos will cover the earth once again in a flood of judgment. But here's what Scripture tells us. Throughout, Scripture tells us that God is not subject to the chaos. He's not surprised by the chaos. He's not overwhelmed by the chaos. As creator, he's actually in control even over the chaos, Psalm 29, verses 3 through 10. This is one of my favorite psalms. It's just speaking about the, the royalty of Yahweh. It says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The Lord Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. So it's, it's this picture that God is over the chaos. God's throne rules over the chaos. It's not that the chaos is over here and God rules over here. It's not something outside of his control. And if God is in control of the chaos of creation, then what other chaos does God in his goodness and his sovereignty oversee? Maybe the chaos in the world around us that we see when we turn on the news. Maybe the chaos in your own life in your own heart, in your own mind. So what we have here is a story of chaos. And behold, there arose, verse 24, we're, we're told an, a great storm or an intense storm. Actually, the, the wording there is a mega storm. The boat was being swamped by the waves. Now, storms would often come up on the Sea of Galilee, but the, the sudden intensity of this megastorm catches even these fishermen. These are experienced lake men. They're, they're, they're guys who knew their boats, they knew the sea, but it catches them off guard, much like life often takes us by surprise. You ever get caught off guard by chaos? I mean, you know what I mean. You, you receive an unexpected diagnosis. You end up in the hospital and the, the doctors don't know what's going on with you. Your spouse suddenly passes away and your, your bed is empty. It's just you now. Our world gets transformed by a global pandemic. I want to talk about chaos. A major war breaks out. There's another mass shooting and then another mass shooting and then another mass shooting in an elementary school. Maybe your life has been infiltrated by abuse or addiction or poverty. Chaos is when everything in your life seems to break out of its natural limits, the place where it's supposed to be, things aren't right anymore. They're not in the right place. Everything seems out of control. And we're caught off guard. We're surprised. 
And all that we desire, if you're like me, all that you desire in the midst of that chaos is peace and calm. Can I get another amen? amen. <laughs> right? That's what we desire. We want peace. We want calm. We want everything to go back to normal. And as disciples, when we've, we've gotten with Jesus in the boat, we're tempted to ask the question, hold on, weren't we the ones who actually did what Jesus said? Weren't we the ones who actually followed him where he asked us to go? Aren't we the guys that got into the boat with this guy and this is what we get? This is what we get? The, the guy who wanted to go bury his father and the scribe who told Jesus he'd go anywhere with him, they're standing back on the shore at ease and here we are just about to die. Simply being in the storm, simply being surrounded by chaos feels as if God has left or abandoned us. And we quickly reason, this is how our minds work, I think, we quickly reason ourselves to the thought that if God really loved us, if God really cared about me, if, if he was really present, then why in the world would he let me go through something as horrible and difficult as this? And therein, brothers and sisters, therein lies the, the temptation. The temptation to assume that the presence of chaos in our lives equals the absence of God in our lives. If chaos is here, God can't be. Because when we conclude that God is absent, when we say, here's chaos, God must be absent, he must be asleep, he must be somewhere else, if we conclude that God is absent, then we're tempted to take control of the chaos and in our power, try to put everything back where it's supposed to be, in our own power. I mean, do you, do you see the subtle deceit of the evil one here? That he would, bring, he would actually bring, God would allow him to bring chaos into our lives, and then he would say, oh, there's chaos in your lives. God must be somewhere else. And so we tempt, we're tempted to doubt God's presence and his power in the chaos. And in this story, rightly so, because the next thing we read in this story is perhaps the most shocking thing in the story, but he was asleep. Jesus was, <laughs> Jesus was asleep. I've never been on a boat that's, that's had like waves coming over, you know, the bows. Like, I'll go out on a boat on Ochico Reservoir, or Prineville Reservoir, and I'm fine with a few little mists, but I've never been out on the open sea in a little boat with, with waves crashing in on me. I have no interest to get on a cruise ship. Zero. I do not want, amen, thank you. That was an easy amen. I don't want to go on a crab boat in the middle of the Bering Sea. I don't even want to watch Deadliest Catch. I'm not interested. I have no... <laughs> I don't want to be out on the deck when there's like freezing cold water coming over and dousing me. It's, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but it's not interesting to me. Can't imagine it being very, I can't imagine it being a calming experience. So I can't imagine, I can't even imagine how Jesus slept through that. I mean, would Jesus like on the deck of the deadliest catch and he's asleep? And I, you almost just imagine him like going back and forth on the floor of the boat and they're just like, what? what's the, he's, a, he's sleeping. I can't imagine how he slept through this. Now, I've seen people sleep through a lot of things. A few years ago, we went to the 
the Dominican Republic. And we had one young man on our trip with us. Some of you know him, but wherever he went, we went. He was asleep. So the whole flight, asleep. I mean, it was a long flight. We get on a bus and go somewhere. He's out. You know, it was kind of like this narcolepsy thing. I don't know what it was. But he was the most well-rested person on the trip because he could just sleep everywhere. We had another friend when we were in California. Um, we went, uh, it was before we had kids, and we had dinner with this other couple who, was, who were, this is back when we were young, like in our early 20s. And we got in a car together. They were sitting in the front. We were sitting in the back. And uh, we were going to go to Disneyland. We all had Disneyland passes, so it was, you know, free to go. And um, she turned around. She said to us, now, don't be alarmed if I fall asleep on the way. And we're like, this is like a 10-minute drive. What are you talking, you know, what are you talking about? And lo and behold, like, before we'd gone a block, she was out. I mean, just out completely, like, in the mid-sentence. She was talking, and it's like, boom, she's not talking anymore. And her husband, like, yep, she's out. She'll be out the whole time. So there's people that can sleep anywhere, but it's almost absurd that Jesus is sleeping through this storm. And I've often heard it said that for Jesus to be sleeping through this, he must have been exhausted. Yes, I'm sure he was exhausted. And and we say, because he was so exhausted, he was sleeping, that, that just shows that he was fully human. And that is absolutely true. It's certainly true that Jesus was fully human. But in this situation... In a, in a boat that's nearly being capsized. I mean, picture the perfect storm. I'm, I'm picturing this boat going vertical up these swells, right? And here he is asleep. So, so it's meant to be a little bit absurd. The fact that Jesus was asleep should strike us that way. It should be, it should be like, that's not even possible. Because as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus is not just fully human. He's fully divine. He's going to stand up and show us that he's fully divine. He is God in the flesh. And as scripture tells us, God never sleeps. Behold, Psalm 121, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. And of course, the point of Psalm 121 was to encourage Israel to remind God's people of his protective presence. A protective presence, mind you, that never takes a break, never takes a vacation, never takes a a moment off, never rests. God's protection of Israel, and by extension, all of his people, is constant. And because God never sleeps, we should be able to. Psalm 3, I love this psalm. Psalm 3, verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. So so because of God's never sleeping, because of the fact that he doesn't rest, that he's always protecting us, David is able to say, I lay down and rest, even in the midst of my enemies, and I awoke again because God is my protector. So perhaps what we actually see here is not simply just a man exhausted but a man so completely at peace with God's protection of him that the most chaotic of circumstances could not budge him of that trust, could not break him of perfect, peaceful faith in his Father. So what we have here is a picture of true faith in a good Father. And true faith is able to rest when the most grueling and chaotic of circumstances comes. Isaiah chapter 26 tells us, you 
Father, God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What we have here is a picture of Jesus at peace in the midst of chaos. So Jesus' humanity is certainly on display in his fatigue, but even more so in his faith. Because that's what it means to actually be fully human, which, by the way, Jesus was fully human. We are not. We're not very good humans. We're broken humans. We're humans who sin. We don't live up to the potential God built into us. If we were fully human, we would believe God in everything. We would trust him with everything. We would walk by faith all the time, never in fear. And so Jesus is is giving us a picture of what it means to be human in trusting a heavenly father who always cares for us, like he's told us already in the Sermon on the Mount. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So we don't know how long the disciples left Jesus asleep. I would venture to say and guess that they did everything they could before they woke him up. I mean, these, these are fishermen. These are guys that know their boats. They know the ocean. And so I'd imagine that they, that they extended all their skills and all their capabilities and all their know-how before finally approaching him. They were attempting, in other words, to control the chaos in their own power. They were trying to figure it out. And a major part of walking with Jesus, I think, is learning to acknowledge our predicament. To to see the mess that we're often in and ask him for help, even when he seems absent, even when he seems silent, even when he's rolling around on the deck asleep. And I think it took the disciples, we don't know for sure, but I think it took the disciples a little while to get to the point where it says they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Save us, Lord, we're dying. You can imagine them just crying out. It's, in the Greek, it's three words. It's like that's how much time they feel like they have to make this. And it's actually, you may not recognize it this way at first glance, but what they're actually saying is a prayer. They are praying to Jesus in this moment. And it's the kind of prayer that's known that we find throughout Scripture that's called a prayer of lament. And in their distress, these men are actually quoting the Psalms. Check this out, Psalm 44. Awake, it's the psalmist writing. Awake, who's he addressing? He's talking to God. Why are you sleeping, O Yahweh? Rouse yourself, rise up, get up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So if you've ever felt like God was asleep, You're not alone. These disciples saw God asleep. And the people of Israel over and over again in these prayers of lament would cry out to God and say, God, wake up. We are dying. Save us. Verse chapter 69 of the Psalms. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Save me, O oh God. These, these disciples are praying these psalms of lament to Jesus in this moment. 
And the Bible is filled with these kinds of prayers of lament. These are, these are cries to God for salvation. That's all they are. Cries to God for salvation. Pleas for him to wake up, to notice our trouble, to save us. What lament does is that it, it notices the chaotic brokenness that we find ourselves in. It notices the ugliness of the world. It sees evil and calls it evil. It sees suffering and calls it suffering. And then it takes all of that and it presents it to God. And it does it with tears. In lament, we approach God. We tell him that things are not acceptable the way that they are. They're unbearable, unlivable. We cannot live this way anymore, God. The way things stand, you cannot allow it to stay this way, God. A lament tells God that he must intervene to change things. And that's what these disciples are doing. God, you have to intervene or we're dead. So lament is honest conversation with God. It's not necessarily a request to have everything explained to us. That's not the point. Laments aren't like, hey, hey, God, could you give me a reason for this? That's not the point. The, the point is there's an acknowledgement that the storm is too great for us to control and we need God to save us. Now, one alternative for the disciples, if they hadn't decided to pray this prayer to Jesus, one of their alternatives would have been, I, th- I think this is something we do in the chaos, would be to ignore the circumstances. What storm, Peter? I don't see a storm. What are you talking about? And we just kind of ignore the, the circumstances. And honestly, I think we do this as believers because sometimes we believe the, guy, the, the lie that God just wants us to be happy and optimistic all the time. God wants us to put a, put a happy face on, to, to fake it until we make it. But the trouble is that the world in our lives are not always happy and orderly. Things are often chaotic. And so the response of just completely ignoring the the storm is actually delusional. And what lament does is it requires us to be brutally honest with the predicament that we're in. To say this, pardon my language here, this sucks. This is not good, God. To ignore the circumstances is delusional, but... What lament does, it doesn't take us to a place of hopelessness or despair. It just takes us to a a place of of honesty with God, hopeful honesty. And I I think there's another alternative for disciples. And so one alternative is just to ignore the circumstances. The other alternative is to go straight to despair. And I I think that that they would have done this they would have pursued despair in the story if they just left Jesus asleep. Like, what's the narcoleptic going to do? What's the carpenter rabbi going to do? He doesn't know anything about boats or sailing or oceans. Let's not bother him. Just leave him be. Let's face our imminent death with, with dignity and just take it. This is, this is the kind of response that takes place when we, when we doubt God's power and goodness. He must be absent And honestly, it arises from a a place of pride where we're too proud to go and ask for help. But lament 
What it requires from us is humility. We have to be honest and we have to be humble enough to go to God with our need. It requires that we take the most difficult, chaotic parts of life to God, even when it seems like he's asleep. I don't know about you, but when I wake up from a nap, which I will Lord willingly do in about four hours from now, I tend to be a little disoriented, and I tend to be a little grumpy, I guess. I don't think that's the case with Jesus, although it seems to be, because the very first thing he does is to rebuke his disciples. They wake him up, and it's almost like, why did you wake me up? He said to them, verse 26, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid, oh, you have little faith? And the, the, I mean, the answer seems obvious. Look, <laughs> you know, look at the waves. Look where we are. Why, why, why does he rebuke them? Because to me, it, it seems like in some sense they are displaying at least some faith. They're recognizing their predicament. They're, they're coming to, to the one that they call Lord, and they're coming to him for salvation. Well, first of all, what's obvious in the story is that Jesus rebukes them for their overwhelming fear. He literally calls them, the word, the word, he calls them cowards. Why are you being cowardly? And fear or cowardice is the opposite of faith. But, but Jesus, as we already saw, remember Jesus is the picture of faith. He's the picture of peace. He's the picture of calm and trust in the midst of chaos. He trusts his father completely and he's not overcome by fear. But if these disciples are to truly follow Jesus, they won't just get into the boat. That's the first step. The next thing they will do is that they will do the same things that Jesus does. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Not just go where he goes, but do what he does. And so when he, when he rebukes them and says, why are you afraid? He's pointing at himself and he says, be like me. Do what I'm doing. I'm trusting. When the Faith of the disciples is full. They will rest in and trust their Father's protective love. And, and Jesus is simply saying, your fear doesn't show faith. And secondly, I think what Jesus may re, be rebuking them for is, and, and this is just me imagining, but I think he might be rebuking them for taking so long to wake him up and ask for help. The first instinct of faith Rather than saying, you know, that Bible verse that nobody can actually find in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. Not in the Bible, by the way. Not actually biblical, by the way. We usually go there, but the first instinct of faith, rather than saying God helps those who help themselves, should be to go to God immediately with our troubles, even before our troubles. Going to God with him immediately how much energy do we spend before we trouble God to help us you know in our pride we we've deceived ourselves that asking for help should be a final resort a last measure but I think Jesus is saying no 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 no. faith means that asking for help should be your first instinct not the final resort I also I wonder how many prayers go unanswered because they're simply unasked God is often, I think, ready to respond, but we think he's asleep because we haven't gone to him and asked him for help. He's waiting to help. He's ready to help. He's merciful and gracious, and too often our smallness of faith doesn't bother to ask. 
So the disciples are pridefully attempting to to control the chaos, and Jesus calls them to humility, and they're fearfully despairing, and in that, Jesus calls them to faith. But but I want you to notice two things about Jesus. He rebukes them, but he he rebukes them with, with some hope and with some grace. First of all, he doesn't say to them that they have no faith. He actually calls them a name. He calls them little faiths or faith midgets, which I know that's probably not a PC word. They're little faiths. They're tiny faiths. That's, that's what they are. He recognizes the beginning of faith in them. I mean, these, these are dudes that got in the boat with him. There's some faith there. It's just not full grown. And what he's doing is inviting their faith to grow, and any storm or chaotic situation is another opportunity for our faith to grow. Do you take it as that? Do you take it when something bad comes into your life? Do you say, oh, God might be wanting to grow my faith in this? So Jesus doesn't say they have no faith. He recognizes some faith. He he wants it to grow. And, And secondly, Jesus is gracious to save. He, he answers their request, their little faith request. He answers it. He answers their plea regardless of the size of their faith. He saves us, especially when we don't deserve it. The bounty of his grace doesn't depend upon the bounty of our faith. He's gracious even when our faith is small. So with their lament, with their waking of Jesus to, to save them, these disciples recognize in him something more than a carpenter, something more than just a rabbi. They, they call him Lord. They address him, and they ask him to save them. So they, they recognize that he can do something for them. They've, they've walked with him. They've watched him do something for other people, like lepers and, and centurions and sick people. And now they're asking him to do something for them, and he does, verse 26. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Jesus, from a place of perfect peace, brings perfect peace. He he reverses the chaos, the decreation. He puts everything back where it's supposed to be, and at first we have a great storm, and now the text tells us we have a great calm. So it's, this is now the lake that you want to wakeboard on, Mark Gaddy. It's like glass. We remember that only who has the power over creation? Yahweh. Only the Lord God has the power over the chaos. Only the Lord God can put the sea in its place and tell the winds to stop. And Jesus displays here the power of Yahweh himself. He utters a command and the winds and the sea instantly submit to his authority without hesitation, without question, the kind of thing a parent dreams of. Stop, he says, and they stop. Now, the question is, we've been going through the book of Matthew, the question has always been for all of us, what will we do with Jesus' words? The wind and the sea don't get to ask that question. They don't have the option of disobedience. They obey instantly. They don't have the kind of freedom that we have to disobey Jesus. They must obey. They must submit to his authority. And the disciples are just right to ask, marveling, what sort of man is this that even 
winds and sea obey him. And we know what kind of man he is because we know he's God in the flesh. And of course, our faith through this story should be awakened to the fact that Jesus is no mere man. He's fully man, but he's the creator God himself. So, so how then can this story encourage us to follow Jesus, encourage us to grow in our faith in the midst of our chaotic struggles? And I just want to point out four things. And the first is this. Can we remember this week that Jesus is Lord in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the troubles of our lives? In, in other words, it doesn't surprise him when chaos comes into our lives. It's not outside of his will when chaos and trouble come into our lives. His goodness does not preclude trouble. In fact, sometimes his goodness and love for us ordains trouble. Jesus doesn't preserve us from the chaos. He preserves us in the chaos. He's the Lord even of the storm. Secondly, Jesus is not just Lord, but Jesus is present in the midst of the chaos and the troubles in our lives. It wasn't, the great thing about the disciples wasn't necessarily their choice to get on the boat in verse 23. That was good, but it wasn't the big thing. It wasn't the main thing. It's not what made them special. The most significant part of the disciples getting into the boat was the person who was in the boat with them. Jesus. It wasn't their following. It was him. It was his presence. That they were following him, that Jesus was there with them. Jesus is present in the midst of the chaos and the troubles of our lives. And the most significant thing about us may simply be that Jesus has promised to be with us, even to the end of the age. And then thirdly, I'll just point out that I think Jesus gives us permission to lament. That doesn't mean that we just walk around crying and moaning all the time. But God wants us to ask him because he loves to answer prayer. He's not inconvenienced by us voicing our troubles or concerns. He's not inconvenienced by us telling, telling him how bad his world is and questioning why. He saves us even and especially when our faith is weak. And, and I think lament is especially an important thing in the time we are in now. I mean, these last two years for our world have been crazy. They've been chaotic. Perhaps they've even been traumatic. They've been like a storm. And sometimes the aftermath of a storm can be worse than the event itself. When we're left trying to clean up the mess that we're left with. We want, to have, we want to have things go back to normal, but we've all experienced some sort of loss in the last couple of years. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us have lost relationships along the way, family members that we've disagreed with for something and we're not even sure we can talk to them anymore. We've lost people from our church. We've had divisions in our family. We've, we've had 40 more than 40 people who've left the church in the last two years. And, and I don't say that as, as any form of accusation. I, I say that because it makes me really sad. Because I miss them. I love my brothers and sisters, and I, I don't like to see them go. And I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong that they went. What I'm saying is that 
Jesus invites us to bring our sadness to him. Jesus invites us to bring all this stuff to him and go, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to put everything back into order, but I know that everything's not right. Here it is, Jesus. All these things should make us grieve. And what lament does, it actually gives us a language that allows us to not ignore these things, but to take them to God and ask him to bring order in our chaos. We need to lament because the fact is we need and will always need God's help. And that's what lament does is goes to him and asks him for help. And I don't, I don't know how to do that as a, as a church, but I know that I've got to lead us into that somehow. How will we lament? How will we heal? How will we move forward together? It's a question that Jesus gives us the permission to do. And then finally, I think Jesus calls us to faith. Jesus is the perfect example of trust in a father who never sleeps or slumbers. So even when our faith is small, Jesus is gracious. Jesus is okay with the mustard seed, but he desires for us to follow him in faith and trust and give God the opportunity to bring order into our chaos. And even if there's not external order into our world, Jesus is wanting to bring a great calm, just like he brought in that sea, into our hearts. And what that is, is faith. Jesus calls us to grow in our faith. Will you pray with me? Jesus, the sermon might have felt chaotic this morning, I don't know, but I do know that we often walk in the midst of chaos and We may walk out of here and walk into a chaotic situation, a chaotic home, a chaotic conversation. Um, Lord, we don't know what we'll walk into, but my prayer this morning is that we would recognize that you are Lord in and through all those situations. You are Lord over them. You sit enthroned above the chaos, and we can bring all these things to you. So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen and grow our faith. We admit that we are little faiths. Faith weaklings at times. We walk in fear too often and we confess that to you. Today, Jesus, would you be the one who who gives us faith, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We ask that you'd strengthen our faith and draw us more and more to you in the midst of the troubles, in the midst of the chaos. God, I know there's a lot of people in this room who Inside and outside, life is chaos, and I pray that you would especially come around those folks, those individuals, and love them, whether it's loving them just through the ministry of your spirit or whether it's loving them by bringing brothers and sisters around them to love them and to pray for them and to be with them and to care for them and to cry with them and to mourn with them, to weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh. Lord, we pray that we would be that kind of body who walks through this together because we know you are the king who walks with us. Give all this to you and pray these things in your name. Amen.